Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as, am I strong enough to love and do I deserve to be loved? I'm your host, Andrew Bonaponte, and today we are joined by Jose Polito of At The Service. Jose, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. Very excited to be here. Jose, can you tell us a little bit about what it means to be an evangelization coach? Everyone has heartbreak or suffering regarding evangelization. And by that, I mean going back home, let's say for Christmas dinner, it's highly likely that there will be at least one major family member who is not practicing Catholic. And also the workplace. Imagine going to the workplace and it's very secular uh, or maybe lifelong friends. Perhaps you and somebody attended Catholic high school and just through the course of life that somebody or those group of friends fallen away from the faith. So I found it at the service so that we could equip Catholics with the best communication and leadership skills so that they could engage in life-giving evangelization. I got to tell you, I have, as you were going through those examples, I was thinking in my own life of like people who fit pretty much each of those. So that's definitely a relatable experience. Right. It is relatable. And the biggest sort of like controversial statement I can make in this podcast is evangelization of those folk can be life-giving for you. It's so essential for evangelization to be life-giving for the evangelist. Mm -hmm. Even when there's fighting, even when there's sort of like fear, there are certain skill sets that really support that. I saw that come time and time again as I was working in secular places or evangelizing folk evangelizing churches, as in non-Catholic churches. And in each of those environments or situations, I found great friendships that were actually augmented by sharing the Catholic faith. The biggest question is always like, well, what did you say? What did you do? It just comes down to a few skills. It's uh, communication skills, leadership skills, craftsmanship. If you got those three down, then you could be a Navy SEAL in 2023, in the army of the Lord. (laughs) Sounds like an amphibious project. And a lot of it is finding that relief connection and purpose. It's, I don't want to fight with my family member anymore. I don't want to fight with my best friend anymore. I don't want to fight with my, I don't ever want to fight with my work colleagues. So what can I do yet? I feel like I'm suffocating. Yeah. Just try this listening technique. Try this expression sentence. Try bringing it to prayer this way. So you can see the whole menu of options. Like if I could bring colleagues from a highly secular company to uh, come to mass, daily mass at St. Matthew's Cathedral, then anybody can. It's just a series of skills in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Now, one, one area you do a lot of work in is in men's ministries. I think this is, this is an area where a lot of churches maybe recognize in theory a need, but they don't necessarily know how to accomplish that effectively. But before we get into that, what's some of the, the background why are men's ministry so important? Yeah, there's like just quite a few reasons. One, we can say there is a fatherhood crisis in the United States. And I can say just from personal experience, whenever I coach people on one-on-one evangelization techniques, the topic of father always comes up. It could be a mom evangelizing her children or millennials. And then invariably they'll say, oh, there's a lot of resentment because dad wasn't there. And it doesn't matter what the nature of the particular disagreement or that situation is, that is always a factor pretty much? Absolutely. And even on the millennial side, when I coach millennials on how to evangelize their family and their workplaces, invariably the topic of fathers come up. I think that's why a lot of people in culture sort of drift away from 
valuing either their individual fathers or fatherhood in general is because the the negative examples are so close to home and they think well if this is what this is what it's like having a father then you know maybe it's good for me to get away from that situation to such an extent that i don't even value this as a part of life for anybody the culture doesn't exactly make it easy for somebody to find their way in, in this area because it gives some narratives of what it means to be a man that tend to be pretty misleading one way or the other, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so if I were to poll people who ascribe to toxic masculinity and I, and I were to ask them, what is the ideal man? They would say someone who does chores. That, that is not inspiring. <laughs> that's, that's a butler. <laughs> and then any man who is not that is a toxic masculine male. Yeah, it's, it's pretty limiting, right? It's pretty limiting. And also just part of being a dad is like telling your kid, no, you're wrong. You shouldn't punch your sister. There is like laying down the law. It's just with social media and consumerism, there's this concept of like, well, if my dad doesn't serve my purposes, then maybe he's toxic. And then on the other hand, there's like, let's say fathers who are alcoholics, right? That's like the canonical example. That isn't good either. So it's kind of rough to say like dads should do ABC or should not do ABC because typically I'm not talking with like the bad dads or the bad moms or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, it's like, okay, right now you have the situation. What can I equip you with for that and evangelizing your father? Or you're a father and there's water under the bridge. How do I equip you to evangelize your son or daughter who uh, is wary of the situation? And the, the biggest story to tell about fatherhood, I think, is not so much why people mistrust them or why they should become heads of household or whatever. The biggest story to tell is like, if you want to inspire a man to be heroic, this is what you do. I think men are looking for that and they're feeling distrusted and they can tend to drift towards other figures in the culture who are offering sort of a way out of that or a way to counteract that. Some like work out, get buff. You're not a man if you're not big. Yeah. And there's like Joe Rogan basically saying work out every day or Joko Wilkin. I forget his name. As Catholics, we have to take pause and say, are these Catholic men? Yeah. Are they selling almost like a Nietzschean narrative of sort of, you know, building your own will to power a little bit? That, that's yeah, the sense there we I, go. Get, so I get from it. You're pulling up all the great philosophy. The, the simple thing about what I believe can help men become heroic is remind them who they are. And this is in scripture. Matthew 1, Joseph was really hesitant and was considering separating himself from the perfect woman and from God incarnate. And again, like St. Joseph is like the greatest man aside from Jesus to have ever, you know, experienced holiness and live. So I don't think it's like he was so dumb. And I did air quotes because the scripture says he was a just man. So I almost want to say perhaps he was the paragon of holiness within the Jewish tradition. He did the best with what theology and truth he had, which as we know now is not the fullness. When we look at, the, at Joseph's dream, that is when we see the effect of the fullness of the word in, in a man. Joseph's dream kicks off with Joseph, son of David. It didn't say Joseph Carpenter. It didn't say Joseph, member of the Jewish nation. It didn't say Joseph who is confused. Joseph, son of David, the highest title of honor the angel could have highlighted. If you want a man to become a hero, remind him who he is. If you want to destroy a man, have him forget who he is. That's such a funny point because there's this 
narrative in the culture with respect to women, not defining them as daughter, sister, mother, wife, like not defining them and limiting them to those relationships. But you're saying on the, on the men's side, it's that important. And it's the most important way to understand an individual. And that applies to men in addition to women too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it has to be also coupled with honor, something that is respectable. Well, then the other half of the sentence is, be not afraid to take Mary, your wife, into your home. Well, oh my goodness, the angel could have called Mary any number of things. Mary, who is the Blessed Virgin. Mary, who is most pure. Mary, who is the mother of God. But Mary, your wife, as in this title that relates to what, who Joseph is. Therefore, now the, the will of God, take her into your home, it makes sense. What does one do with their wife? Takes her into his home. Now, the angel appears to marry uh, in a similar way in Luke. And is that, is that how the interaction goes there? It's a little different. For one, like there was a conversation. Uh, Our Lady asks questions. And that's mm-hmm. really incredible. Now, one of the fascinating things is that when we then look at Mary's language throughout Scripture, it is emotional. And I don't mean like in the pejorative way. I mean, she describes her feelings. When she meets with her cousin, Elizabeth, the very top of the Magnificat, it describes her feelings of awe to the Lord and her joyful gratitude to the Lord. When we go to her finding our Lord in the temple, what's like literally the first thing she tells him? It's, hey, we're anxious. <laughs> I mention that because since Mary ponders the Lord in her heart and she expresses her heart, we can almost say that verbs we might describe her as doing are reflection and expression. Yeah, she's manifesting her interior life. Yeah, like she thinks about the Lord in her heart, and then she talks about the Lord, and then she thinks about the Lord, and then she talks about the Lord. Uh, For Joseph, it's a little different, or a lot different. For Joseph, it's, (laughs) what is the truth that I need? Following the truth, there's this action that I need to accomplish. All right, time to lead. Like, at the end of Joseph's dreams, it's never like, oh, and then he thought about it for a week or two, and then he he led the Holy Family to Egypt. It's... Joseph, rise, take the mother, uh, take the child and his mother to Egypt for Herod is trying to kill them. <laughs> and literally the next word is Joseph rose and he put the child and his mother to <laughs> Like leadership, fact, fact, action. It's a truth statement, truth statement. Therefore, we should do this. And then he does it. And then he leads with that. Let me just say just how unusual this is. This is so unusual that in Matthew, in Matthew 1, there's a little line there that says, David became the father of Solomon. This is in the genealogy. David became the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. There are many perhaps not everyone in the Davidic line did like the will of God all the time. Right. <laughs> so the fact that Joseph wakes up, encounters the truth, and does it, that is like huge. Because Solomon didn't always do that. David didn't always do that. Even where the genealogy starts, Abraham, you know, there were a few things there. If you want a man to be a hero, have him remind him who he is. Well, who reminds us who we are? The Catholic Church would say, Jesus. Reveals man to himself, yeah. That's right. Now, the neatest thing about how Jesus revealed Joseph, like in, in Matthew 1, there's a really interesting dynamic there. I argue that Joseph received the fullness of the word twice. So once in the dream and twice through his marriage with Mary. Here's my argument. Hit me. I'm ready for a hot take. Okay. So the dream says, 
you will name him Jesus. Very simply. Later on, Matthew goes into the prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. If you take that, that, that's referencing Isaiah. If you take that line and compare it to Isaiah's line, there is one thing that is different, and it actually changes everything for Joseph. The one thing that was different is Isaiah does not say they. Isaiah says she. In Isaiah, it says she will bear a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. Oh. So the question is, is that she inclusive or exclusive? Yeah. She says that Joseph is ancillary, or is he part of the naming? The fullness of the word says, no, Joseph is not ancillary. It is a they. The correct interpretation of Isaiah is to include Joseph in that. It's she will name him Emmanuel with her husband. Yeah. And that's totally different in Joseph's worldview because that means that a perfect relationship with God isn't just for the people over there, the Pharisees, the, like the, the scribes or the scholars of the law. It isn't for just that person over there, the, his mother. It's also for me. Yeah. So that that's one way he received the fullness. And then the second is, of course, through the incarnation. But uh, basically, I like to preface this like, Andrew, what are babies in the womb useful for? They're, they're only useful for being loved. This is really meaningful, I argue, for Joseph and for all of us. Because here in his dream, God is loving him. God is reminding him, you are the son of David. You have a purpose. You have an incredible mission. You have to protect the very founding of the church, like Mary and Jesus. Why? Well, what is the only relationship Joseph can have with Jesus in the, in the womb right now? And that's Joseph can love Jesus. Yeah. And this answers like two questions that all men have. Am I strong enough to love? And do I deserve to be loved? So anyway, that's a hot take. Um, you know, we, we were talking before the call and, and you mentioned uh, St. Paul too. And, th- and this way you were talking about this experience of encounter, you know, it sounds like Paul's conversion too. Because like in, in Acts 9, in that vision of the risen Christ, you know, the Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me episode? You know, Jesus gives him a couple of elements of the truth. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then he immediately tells him, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. It's always like you're saying, it's that truth leading to action format. And then you don't, you don't get any verbatim words out of Paul for a while after that. Before I, I unpack that, when you go to any sort of men's podcast or any sort of podcast on toxic masculinity oriented towards a male audience, there are these truth, truth statements like women are hypergamous or men are designed to be dangerous or whatever. I argue men should find those truth, truth action statements in scripture. Not in those podcasts you're saying, like those examples you're giving are not necessarily reliable. Uh, Correct. Because again, money uh, and there's like an audience and there's politics in the air and uh, you don't know the personal lives of these people. Like find your truth, truth statements in scripture because they really build up the man and of course, as Catholics believe, you know, orient you to the, the true mission, which is union with God and helping others achieve that. So with Saul, you know, then Saul, it's Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul responds, who are you, sir? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. So again, there's a truth statement and then do this. Saul does that. However, again, it's not like Saul, how do you feel? It's not... Uh, Saul, what are your wounds? It's truth. 
That's interesting. It's sort of challenging Saul to come up with a truth. Why are you persecuting me? It's, you know, I mean, it's sort of a rhetorical question. There is no good reason. But at the same time, like it causes Saul to examine himself a little bit, not necessarily on an emotional level, not excluding that necessarily, but not really focusing on that. What reason is there? No reason. Oh, boy. Yeah, exactly. And for a dude to have no reason to do something, that means actions lack purpose. And that's like death to a man. Especially when they're violent actions. Exactly. Then we get to the exchange between St. Ananias and our Lord. And even in that one, we see uh, somewhat of a conversion. Like, I don't want to say that he became Catholic finally. It's more like there was uh, things that needed to be resolved within his faith. So Lord says, get up and go to the street called Straight. Ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, etc., etc., etc. And Ananias replies, Lord, I have heard from many sources about this man. What evil things he has done to your holy ones in Jerusalem. Fact. (laughs) And here he has authority from the chief priests in prison, all who call upon your name. Fact. (laughs) (laughs) The Lord said to him, go for this man is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. Whoa, purpose. Counterfact. Counterfact. God's will is for this man to be an evangelist. And, and then here's the one that I think really just established that brotherhood. And I will show him what he will have to suffer for my name. Mm. Saul will sacrifice alongside Ananias. And then just from, you know, what evil things he has done to St. Ananias talking to Saul, Saul, my brother. Like that is amazing. Oftentimes in, in Catholic land, it's like, oh, you know, I don't want to talk to that surgeon from the Planned Parenthood. What evil things. Or I don't want to talk to that alcoholic absent father. At least for men to evangelize, we need to see the potential for them to join the army and to sacrifice in the army. That's what leads to Saul, my brother. And when I coach men on how to build their brotherhood and let's say their young adult ministry, I take this as inspiration. Like highlight a sacrifice your brother in arms did and talk about the impact. So for example, uh, you might know somebody called Andrew Bonapane. I might say something like, Andrew, you sacrificed uh, some time and uh, some income, some wealth uh, to discern God's will in seminary. And that has an amazing impact on others because now you have such a great education to be able to uh, teach others through your podcasts because of this great training that you now have. Thank you for doing that sacrifice and thank you for building the body this way. Ooh, deflect, deflect. It's not me. It's the, it's the guests who are doing all that. <laughs> right, right. But, and even with all that, it's like there's, there's a real impact. You're right. I did sacrifice something and it had this amazing result. Men are dying for that. It's not so much we want men to stop being men and become butlers in the home. They have strength. And we need that at home. We need that in our churches. We need men to become leaders. And that's the story men need to hear. You're strong. You deserve to be part of a community. And in that community, we need you to be a leader at the service of the Lord. Yeah. And then we can talk about angels and a huge role <laughs> and stuff like that. I wish we had time for that. <laughs> But you have plenty of time for that in your ministry, which we're happy to have a link to in the episode notes. That's startattheservice.com. 
that'll link to Jose's ministry at the service where you can find a whole variety of uh, different evangelization coaching options that, uh, that he offers. So we're happy to present that because you, uh, you listening at home just got a little taste of, uh, of what that's like here, for which I'm really grateful. <laughs> so thanks for, uh, thanks for cracking open the scriptures for us. Oh, thank, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate that acknowledgement. And then uh, just to clarify for the, the listeners, I coach men, I coach women, I coach young adults, I coach grandparents, because we all deserve this. We all deserve life communication yeah. and everything is very practical. It's always a communication skill or a leadership skill. And you do that either in English or Spanish, correct? See, si. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, surprisingly, the communication skills, they, they cut across all sorts of cultures. But Spanish, English, Japanese, doesn't matter. <laughs> Turns out people want to be heard and appreciated and seen regardless of what geography they're from. Yeah. So yeah, like it can be done. So long as there's like certain mindsets, skills, and most importantly, the Holy Spirit gives you an opportunity. Yeah. Well, there are lots more opportunities to be had. So people can find you again at startattheservice.com. Jose Polito, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. We are back to talk about Inception, a film from 2010 directed by my guy, Christopher Nolan. Kara, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We are talking about this movie in connection with Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's newest movie, which is coming out later in July. We're mostly not going to talk about Oppenheimer, except for, uh, I think there's one connection here, Kara, because Oppenheimer is very concerned with time and death and these really heavy themes about the atomic bomb and the Manhattan Project and all these things. And Nolan's not afraid to get dark and sort of emo about death. He's done this before, right, Kara? <laughs> one or two times. But Oppenheimer seems like it might be the heaviest in this respect. And he, he's also been known to play around with time in his movies where Memento is sort of told forwards mm. and backwards at the same time. And Dunkirk has like different settings playing out more slowly or more quickly. And in Inception, too, there's uh, different levels of the dream that are happening at different speeds at the same time. Was Killian Murphy in Memento? I think that might be the only missing Killian Murphy link in <laughs> Killian Murphy, Nolan's like rabbit's foot actor, who is now the star of Oppenheimer, also yeah. in Inception as the Mark Robert Fisher, who, who's going to get incepted. Spoilers for Inception, if anybody hasn't seen it, who's interested in it in the last 13 years, we're going to be spoiling the entire thing. And Killian Murphy is also a bad guy in the Dark Knight trilogy, also directed by Christopher Nolan. And he's in, let's see, Dunkirk mm -hmm. as a sort of a deserter guy. Uh, Nolan likes using him a lot and his, his unusual face and acting presence. I appreciate that, though. I feel like like Killian's Murphy face goes along well with the Christopher Nolan movie, which I should say, <laughs> I, I strangely, I wouldn't say that I'm like a super fan, but every time I see Killian Murphy in a movie, I'm like, Killian Murphy's really good. Yeah, and th this is probably his biggest opportunity yet in Oppenheimer, where he's playing um, the main character, Robert Oppenheimer, who was instrumental in the Manhattan Project, and is also known for the quote after the fact about his sort of re internal reaction to achieving nuclear technology. And he, he used this line from the Bhagavad Gita, this Hindu text. I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Kara, have you ever heard that quote before? I have, although I did not know where it was from. Yeah, it is, so it's a Hindu quote, but Oppenheimer is largely responsible for having kind of popularized it. One thing that's interesting, and I think maybe for Nolan's purposes, is that that's 
an English translation that Oppenheimer used of that quote, but another and maybe more accurate translation isn't so much I am become death the destroyer of worlds. It's now I am become world destroying time. Mm. So maybe, maybe he'll look into that a little bit. But here in Inception, that's present too, not just because the different scenes happen at different speeds, right? And time gets sped up and slowed down and all that. But because of the idea that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character's wife, played by Marion Cotillard, she gets incepted with an idea when she and Leo are deep in limbo in an, inside a dream and they're just doing raw creation for decades. And he's trying to convince her to come out of it and return to their real kids, right? Because this is mm-hmm. like consuming her. Do you remember? Do you remember how she gets like what she gets incepted with? Like the idea there. Well, I thought it was the the little totem, the little spinning cap. So it's like, isn't it just the idea that she this isn't real? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your world is not real, and death is the only escape. Um, which is when you're in a dream. The way to get out of the dream is to die to your dream self, and then you wake up in reality. That's true. But the problem is that idea takes hold. And even when she gets out of the dream, that idea is still there. And she thinks the real world is still a dream world and takes her own life in order to, quote unquote, escape the dream world. But she's, in fact, dying in reality. So this is something that Leo feels very guilty about because he feels responsible for this in some way. But also his memory of how successful, too successful he was in planting this idea in her head is why he thinks the main plot of the movie can could have a chance of success in incepting an idea into Killian Murphy's mind. I feel like we should pause here and just say that we're about to go get real philosophical and like reading about as deep into this movie as you possibly could. I would say that the majority of the time I watch this movie, I enjoy it as a like fun, pleasant heist movie that is better experienced as like pure entertainment. Just as a caveat, if you're like, wow, I never wanted to think about this movie that deeply. This this podcast is uh, going in a different direction. Right. So I'm here to ruin that for you and for Kara. Uh, that's, right, that's what we signed up for. <laughs> with serious thought. No, it's an extremely fun movie and like is eminently rewatchable. I enjoyed watching this again. Carrie, you had seen this before, right? I've seen this several times. Yeah. And every time I'm like, wow, that was an enjoyable movie. Because of how like it feels so different, like not just the, the famous like hallway fight scene where their gravity is spinning around mm. and they're like fighting on the ceiling. But just like the whole movie feels like they're just different things are possible. I think it's fair. There's lots of little subtleties that when you upon watching it again, you're like, oh, that was like a really nice attention to detail that it all ties together. Now, there are lots of other podcasts you could listen to, like picking apart the feasibility and like (laughs) how how good his idea really is. But I think if you just like take the movie on his own terms, I think Christopher Nolan does a really fantastic job of in its own self-contained way being like very consistent and interesting. And I think even some of the, to like get into the hard stuff, like I might not agree with some of where he seems to come out on some of the philosophical ideas, but I think he's grappling with important questions about you know i think you just mentioned we can start with just the idea of the importance of living in reality and like i think even as christians there are 
temptations that we might have that like this world doesn't matter. It's about, you know, the heavenly kingdom. There's lots of heresies that come out of that kind of an idea where it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, both like this world actually matters. And like the truth about reality of this world matters to us today. And also like to our eternal being. The tension between reality and the dreams isn't just about wondering what's real and what's fake or what's all in my head or whatever. Like that's part of it. But another one is the the desirability of escaping reality, to your point, which can have a kind of heretical Christian flavor to it sometimes. But here, I think they're trying to escape death in an indirect way. They're not really saying that. Mm. But the more levels of dream states you go down, the slower time passes and the more quote unquote living you can do. Reality is where time passes the fastest and death is the most apparent. Um, So that he's connected sort of a faith in reality with an acceptance of death, I think in a really interesting way that, you know, we've talked a little bit about memento mori and how important that is from a Catholic perspective in, especially in Titanic, also starring Leo. <laughs> so I don't know why, maybe, maybe Leo really cares about the Memento Mori devotion. We need like a six degrees of the movies that we have discussed on this podcast. There's uh, <laughs> yeah. high degrees yeah, of overlap. So much for death. Leo's character in this movie, Cobb, Dom Cobb, can't really escape that because he's a widower and holds himself responsible for his wife's death. And the, I think the wife stuff here, speaking of six degrees of separation, not that we've talked about most of any of these movies, but Nolan keeps coming back to wife stuff Mm. over and over and over again. You know, in Memento, there's a dead wife. Uh, In the Dark Knight trilogy, Batman's mom and love interest are both dead. Um, The Prestige, there's a dead wife. Uh, Interstellar, there's a dead wife. There's no dead wife in Dunkirk, but there are hardly any women at all in Dunkirk. (laughs) So anyway, you know, this is something that Nolan has been criticized for, and maybe rightly, just kind of throwing a dead wife out there to motivate the main character, and she doesn't get to be a real character herself. Which I think is a possibility. And even in this movie, like the, the wife is literally an unreal character. She is a figment of Cobb's imagination. She's also like, hopefully the worst version of herself. She like exists only as like an agent of chaos and destruction. Uh, an interesting kind of relationship there in that like, doesn't Cobb constantly enter his own dreams basically to be with her? And like, he's definitely choosing to live in an element of like putting aside reality and like escaping his, the consequences of his own actions. Yeah. Cobb's hobby in a, aside from trying to do this inception on Killian Murphy is just going back into his own memories basically, and revisiting his memories of his wife. So even though in his job, this like figment of his wife is like constantly getting in the way and causing major problems, he's keeping her alive or trying to keep her alive. Well, that's also an interesting point. Like, it seems as though this movie is set up around the idea that he's supposed to be trying to get back to his kids. And yet... Like he only ever has like one sliver of memory of his children, of them like Mm -hmm. running away. You know, you see them from the back. It's just kind of an interesting contrast of supposedly this is all about his kids, but his kids in a way are also this sort of almost figment of his imagination, at least the way that they're presented in the movie. 
you also find out that like he spent what would be the equivalent of, you know, decades just alone with his wife as they venture deep into limbo to build their own world. And it seems like the kids weren't there. So they like lived an entire lifetime together without their children, which is like just a weird, (laughs) weird idea to me, like as someone with kids. I'm like, yeah, you know, a weekend off would be nice. But it's like That's a little telling about commercial secularism. If you look at any Lexus commercial, it's always a husband and wife who are wealthy, young and attractive still. They have kids at home, but the kids aren't making any sort of claims on their <laughs> time. They could just go out into the city and sort of exercise their, I don't know, their individuality or something. And this is sort of like a 50 year Lexus commercial for Leo and Marion Cotillard. I mean, they look great. I'll give them that. What makes the limbo state so tempting for Leo is like he just gets to spend all this time with his wife. And they do, like you said, they live a whole life together. They grow old in a mental sense. So that like the Leo you're seeing for most of the movie is secretly an old man who is sort of unmoored from reality because he's had this like life altering experience that to him has lasted decades. You know, it's such a strong pull that it still has a claim on him now, which is why he keeps wanting to go back and spend more time with his wife and his memories. It does strike me, though, just like watching it. And even though he ostensibly is trying to get back to his kids, it just really strikes me that there's a certain amount of like exhaustion to him as well. Yes. I don't know. Again, like as a Christian, when you're thinking about like the point of this life is not to extend this life indefinitely. Like we are here because like, this is where our salvation is formed, but like ultimately we are meant to be seeking union with God in his kingdom. And the idea that you're just going on forever, like is exhausting. It's like, we are not meant for this. You know, it sort of reminds me a little bit of the difference between men and elves in Lord of the Rings Mm. and how, men dying is sort of seen as a gift, whereas elves stick around and they get tired of Middle Earth. And Leo Leo is sort of trying to be an elf a little bit Mm. and, you know, sticking around and living all this time in the dream state. And it's just exhausting. It's also kind of escaping the reality of just dealing with his grief, like rather than, you know, dealing with the fact that his wife is gone. And I mean, he ostensibly is like dealing with trying to get back to his kids. Uh, But it just feels like he's constantly escaping rather than going through the process of like learning how to carry on with life without her. Yeah. And the, the dream version of Mal, his wife, she is the, like the embodiment of his escape from grief. And she, throughout the movie, he keeps telling him that he believes in a reality or he believes what's possible or what's true or what's real. And she, at one point, she tells him, Dream Mall tells him, you keep talking about what you believe. What do you feel? And this to me sounds like very, could have been torn from some moralistic therapeutic deism kind of rhetoric about this is what really matters. What's emotionally powerful to you should dictate what you, you know, what is true to you. Mm. And this is, I think this is a sort of, tempting way of living that he's feeding to himself. Because you're right, because like even Maul in his mind is really like his own brain talking to him, right? Like he's not actually having a conversation with another person. He's having a conversation with a memory. Another thing she says, uh, she says to him in like the climax of the movie is like, admit it, 
You don't believe in one reality anymore. So choose, choose me. And this, again, sounds very familiar to me as like being this sort of postmodern idea that there is no one version of reality for everybody. You live your truth. Mm -hmm. And in the absence of any, you know, one objective truth, there is just individual choice. That's what life is about, is creating your own meaning. And this is, I think, what Mal is trying to like get across to Cobb. And it's, you know, very tempting for him because like, what a, it would be that easy to just stay there. Yeah. Although it's interesting as you're talking, it does strike me that ultimately, you know, Nolan rejects that idea, right? Yeah. Or, you know, seemingly rejects, let's put aside the ending of the movie and what you think about right. what choice he has made and whether that, what, what that says. But, you know, he locks up Maul in the, at the end and sends her away because I can't do this anymore. Right. And so there is a choice that he makes, which is, to let Maul go, which is like ostensibly choosing reality, or at least choosing to let go of that that fantasy. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really good like little speech that Leo gives about how he's unable to replicate Maul's perfections and imperfections. And mm. how he says to Dream Maul, I'm sorry, you're just not good enough. Like I think that's a really cool demonstration of part of what it means to love. Like you can't substitute your forged version of another person and fall in love with that forgery. Like mm. you need an objective reality outside yourself in order to be in love. Yeah. No matter what you do, if you're in love with an idea of someone, you're not in love. But it's also in interesting as like just a commentary on just like the reality of knowing another where the more time you spend with somebody, the more you realize there are things that surprise you. I was just telling Jason this weekend, he did something where I was like, I did not know that that got under your skin so bad. That's <laughs> like the most ridiculous thing that bothers you. Uh, I was like, I've known Jason for a decade. I'm like, never would have guessed that that was like <laughs> such a huge pet peeve. Uh, you're like, like, I think, you know, memories and ideas of people can't surprise you and can't like, you know, just be who they are. And yeah, right. you're right. Like that's essential to, to true love. And what follows that is this kind of acceptance that Dom has. Like, we had our time together. You know, I had a dream we'd grow old together, and we did. I literally, we grew, we grew old together in a dream. <laughs> I think acceptance is another interesting theme in this movie. And that is the key to Killian Murphy's character is this like tension that he had with his now deceased father about basically feeling unaccepted by his dad and like he was never good enough and his resolution in the dream on the one hand they incept him with this idea that like maybe he should break up the company but i think that the sort of emotional insight is that like everybody wants reconciliation and acceptance, you know, especially from a parent. And like, that is the key to his character's sort of catharsis. It's like, I've been accepted and loved by my father. And so that means that I can like go forward making my own decisions, which I think is kind of like an interesting parallel. And the, the ambiguity there, like the moral ambiguity is, did his father ever actually accept him in that way? We have no way of knowing. You know, we only see the dream father's kind of explanation of what he wants for his son. But yeah, so that, that's like tricky. Yeah, I mean, it's not reality, but it is insight into like our psychological need, right? Like that is like, yeah. like reconciliation and acceptance from our parents is like, I think just a deep human need that we have. When they're sort of 
figuring out the puzzle of how to how to get this idea to stick with the guy and they want something to be emotionally powerful they say okay a it has to be positive and b well, let's start with the relationship with the father mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, they're certainly uh, under the impression that fatherhood is matters in a primordial way yeah i mean it is interesting to compare to the matrix where the matrix has this much clearer delineation between reality and the simulation that is not real. And then this is, you know, there's the real world and then there's the like matrix world. Inception is a, a lot more subtle in that inception to basically is like acknowledging that sometimes it can be difficult to tell what's real, which I think is perhaps a bit ahead of its time. Certainly. I don't feel like this was quite as in the public conscious in 2010 as it feels like it is today I, all the time. You know, you read the news and you're like, wow, I just feel like we're living in a different reality. It is interesting. This kind of, how do you tell? And, you know, just to, to go right to the ending. I mean, that's basically the question he leaves open is like, is Cobb in the real world or did he, somehow escape to some other level of dream world that he's just decided to live in. I think it's meant to be unclear. So for the ending, the famous like spinning top scene at the ending, does the top fall over and is it reality or does the top keep spinning and is it a dream? Nolan has said in interviews, which maybe is not Maybe it's inadmissible evidence for our conversation. But he said in interviews, like, no, that there is a right answer to this question. I just wanted to leave it ambiguous to people because that's not that way. He didn't want your takeaway to be, is it or isn't it? Mm. He wanted the takeaway to be Leo's character and what Leo's character is paying attention to, which is not that like the whole movie he's been fixated on the top. Like in moments of crisis, he goes off alone and he spins the top and like this is like telling him whether, you know, whether he's dreaming or not. But here he spins it and then he walks away and he doesn't pay attention to it anymore. Nolan's bigger priority is that Leo doesn't care. Right. Because this is my take. The existence of a simulated world entails the existence of a real world to simulate it anyway. And we're only morally accountable for acting the same in either one. Uh, So it doesn't matter to Dom whether the top falls over or not. He's caring for his kids. To be clear, I'm not sure that Dom cares at all about acting morally. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) With respect to his kids, he does. But maybe, yeah, maybe uh, the means that he's willing to deploy to get to his kids, not so much. Yeah. But no, for the record, I'm on on team reality. I think the top does fall over. It wobbles. Okay, I'll I'll say I'm like, it wobbles. I think it's meant to be. (laughs) But I think that's, that's a fair point about like, that's not really the point. The point is that for sure, like as far as Cobb is concerned, he's where he wants to be. And like he's choosing that to be his reality, whether or not. Yeah. Which which I think is the problematic point. Right. It's like <laughs> that's there is reality. And there, you know, certainly, again, I think as Christians, we do believe that confronting truth matters. It's not like, well, everybody gets to make up their own version and it's all good. I don't think he's making up his own version of the truth. I think he rejected his own version when he rejected the dream version of Mal. Mm. And that was his big attempt to substitute an alternative truth. So after that point, I don't I just don't think he's paying attention to his dream state anymore. And he's paying attention to reality. So maybe he's not doing the due diligence to understand sufficiently what reality is. 
but I, I don't think he's actively trying to avoid reality. Mm. Kara, I have this whole other thing about how Nolan uses the color red across his movies and what it symbolizes, which Tenet was really cool about. Like Tenet had its problems, but it, like its use of red and blue is, I think, like a key that unlocks a lot of the movies, a lot of his other movies, including and maybe especially Inception. There's a lot of red in the in the last scene, and there's not a lot of red in the movie as a whole. And the character who keeps trying to pull him back to reality wears red more than anybody else. Oh. And in Tenet, the you know the flow of time goes forward and backwards, and there's a color to symbolize, symbolize each each direction. And you would think that red would be the weird one, and blue would be the normal one, but it's not. Blue symbolizes backwards in time, and red symbolizes normal flow of time. Mm. Like there's this whole whole thing about accepting reality in the movie that Robert Pattinson talks about, like not being able to change the future and that kind of thing. Um, it's not an excuse to do nothing, but it's a statement of faith or something like that, that the world will be what it is. Anyway. Oh, and the most important thing, the most important thing. Okay. And then I'll, I'll be done. Nolan's red, green colorblind. It's a color that's there that he can't see. So oh, that's interesting. it's like a reality that's difficult to grasp specifically. That is very interesting. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> Cut that. I really could leave that in. That's pretty, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. <laughs> Maybe it'll come up in Oppenheimer. That'd be fun. We should, we should have had a Patreon level uh, so we could get subscribers to get the exclusive Inception Red theory, theory. <laughs> content. Yeah. If you really want to hear, hear some deep movie nerddom, please sign up. <laughs> Okay. All right. That's it. Well, you know, I think we can leave our top spinning and whether or not it falls over is an exercise left to the listener. (laughs) All right. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Please be sure to share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now and God love you.